0: Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Nucleus Security and in this week's sponsor interview, we'll be chatting with Nucleus's CEO, Steve Carter, about CIS's KEV database, its known exploited vulnerabilities list. Nucleus makes a vulnerability information management platform that ingests info from a bunch of different sources and vuln scanners and things like that. And, uh, yeah, Steve has feelings about the KevList. They're mostly positive, but he has a few reasonable gripes that he'll be joining me uh, a little bit later on to talk about. Uh, It is a really great interview, that one, especially if you're involved in anything vuln management. You've got to stick around for that one. Uh, That is coming up later but first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with our good friend Adam Boileau. And uh, Adam, I mean, obviously we're going to start off by talking about uh, Uber getting owned absolutely sideways by, uh, from the looks of things, uh, by lapses.
1: Yes, uh, Uber had a bad day. They. Yeah. It sounds like somebody bought some credentials for someone's personal machine for like a contractor or an employee of Uber, stole their creds uh, for access into Uber's network. It was multi-factor though, so that's nice, except that the multi-factor was push-based and the attackers just spammed the person with a whole bunch of requests and apparently also hit them via WhatsApp and said, hey, this is the IT department, sorry, you're getting a heap of push requests. Can you just press yes, please? Uh, and they did. <laughs> so that was nice. Yeah. Uh, and then they got into Uber, had a rummage around, uh, eventually found some privileged creds uh, in a PowerShell script on like a shared drive or something. Uh, and those privileged creds were for access to their uh, PAM solution. They had the psychotic. No, no,
0: no. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> hang on. This is the thing, right? You say, you say they found some privileged creds in a script. Yeah. Now, there but for the grace of God go I. Yes. Right? Privileged creds in a network share, open network share, you know, not great. But it happens. Yes. It but happens. admin creds for the PAM? <laughs> like, just, is that common? Like, I was on Twitter trying not to be hot takey and victim blamey about this, but I'm like, hang on. Is this something that
1: happens? I mean, it, unfortunately, yeah, it kind of is. And, I mean, you know, you can see how it happens. You know, you want to integrate something, making figuring out how to drive an API or driving, you know, like the uh, API tokens or whatever. It's hard. You just got to get something done and hard code and a password into a script.
0: No, I, I get it. So we should point out too, for those who are not OFA, uh, PAM stands for Privileged Access Management. And it's basically like a lockbox full of credentials to the entire enterprise. Well, most of it at least. Because from there, the attacker was able to access all of Uber's AWS, its Google Workspace, its Slack. Like they had not the whole enchilada, uh, as far as uh, Uber can tell. Like they didn't get into the customer-facing apps bit of it, but it looks like they had most of the back office, right? Uh, there's some great screenshots of like, the google workspace which had what was like a petabyte of
1: a lot of email yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly right so so they definitely you know got a long way in terms of achieving access through this this pam issue but I, i i you know i understand that we don't want to victim blame and stuff but you know i really do wonder if that's you know how how sloppy is that? Like you know, how how much do we have to blame Uber for this or do we just say welp that's just how it goes? You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm having a bit of a crisis here. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether we should be blaming them for this or just I you know, I just don't I'm lost in terms of judging them.
1: I mean, I've seen the inside of a lot of people's organizations over the years. We've bust into a lot of people's PAM password vaults and you know, secret storage and that kind of thing. And, and honestly, this just sounds super normal to me. Uh, um, you know, and I, it would be nice, but single-factor programmatic authentication, just using users' and names and passwords, because someone needs to get the job done. Like that's just how everything's built. And yeah, you know, this is one of the downsides of centralizing all your credentials. I mean, we, you know, if you stick it all in AD and trust AD to do everything, obviously that's gone badly for people. So people have been sticking credentials in, you know, password vaults instead of you know, passwords.xls on someone's desktop. And it is an improvement, but it's just you know, when it gets popped, you're in a real, real bad place, and I, I don't really want to blame them for it. I mean...
0: But, you know, I mean, if this lapses kid, right, so likely a teenager, if a teenager could find it, surely their red team should have.
1: Well, yes. And, you know, that that's a, you know, that part, yes, it probably should be a thing that, uh. that you're capable of spotting, but it's just it's just how Babby is formed. It's how the world works. It's the reality yeah. of having to get stuff done in an imperfect world and a you know, timeframes and budgets and everything else. So, you know. and
0: and of course, you can't you can't put multi-factor authentication on a service account, right? Yes. Like, I, I, I get all of that. The thing the thing that just bugs me about it is that it's it was a like carte blanche admin yeah. account for the Pam, right? Yeah, yeah. You just sort of think, did <laughs> you
1: did it need all of those <laughs> permissions, you know? But once again, like it's hard, especially when you're dealing with a you know a third-party product which has its own you know permissions model or roles model or whatever else, and and learning that takes time. Like figuring out what Mm. is least privilege, how to implement it in this context—is it going to continue to work? Like that stuff's just hard. Uh, I mean, you see it with, especially with cloud applications, where which this wasn't, but you know, where the privilege model changes underneath you constantly uh, as well. It's just really hard and. You know, I have a lot of sympathy for them. On the other hand, I've also looted a lot of password vaults in my time, and it's a wonderful, you know, joyous thing as an attacker to just scroll through every cred, like every certificate password, every backup system, and just go, yeah, you know, I can do anything, and it's just engineering.
0: Cut, paste, cut, paste, cut, paste. Well, I mean, the hard
1: part is finding where to use the credentials. Like, where's the login thing where you put that password that you've got in? Like, that's the hard part. And that's really Uber's saving grace here is the environment is so big And I guess the kid was bursting with excitement to tell everybody. And so like they're in a good place where, you know, kid doesn't have time to fill a petabyte of email and wants to (laughs) show off about it real quick. And
0: Well, and I I also, Adam, get the sense, and, you know, this is something that hasn't really come into the debate or the discussion around this on Twitter. I, I also get the sense that Uber does have a security team that I'm guessing knows what it's doing and... If this kid had have started actually doing real exfiltration of sensitive stuff, it's probably something they would have noticed, right? So to a degree, what this attacker achieved was, you know, an awful lot of access without any real impact.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is sort of a shock and awe thing. Like everyone's going to be up Ram raid.
0: Up. That's what I'm yes, calling it. It's, it's, <laughs> yes.
1: That's a, that's a great way to put it. And I think, you know, if you were an incident responder looking at this, this is actually pretty easy mode. Right, you Mm -hmm. know, roughly when it happened, you know, it's relatively recent, so the logs are all fresh, you've got a good timeline. You know, there's a massive amount of data, so you would at least have some, you know, chance of spotting it if it had got, you know, had been walked out, you know, compared to, you know, triaging a breach that's, you know, three years deep nation state, you know, you, and you, you know, actually throwing them out of the environment is just going to be such a slog. Whereas this, you know, you know, when you walk up to a ram raid as a police officer, it's pretty clear what happened. You understand it. You can, you know, start dealing with, you know, uh, pulling the threads and investigating. Whereas, you know, you think about, you know, a national parliament. You know, and we're going to talk about one in a second um, that's been owned. Like getting someone out of an environment like that, ah, such hard work. You know, so yeah, you know, it's. I mean,
0: the, It is a really interesting incident on on a lot of levels. Like, I actually had a chat with Dmitry Alperovitch, uh, you know, founder of uh, CrowdStrike, co-founder of CrowdStrike and a friend of the show about this. And he said something really interesting to me, actually, which is this just proves that, you know, all of this this talk about do the fundamentals – right? Everyone talks about do the fundamentals. In this case, you know, a user got owned even though we, they were using uh, MFA and they were using PAM and they, they sort of still got owned, right? And I'm guessing their patching's good, their EDR's good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it is, you know, it just sort of reminds us that security is hard, I think, and this is just a great example of that.
1: Yeah. And, and if your adversary is a teenager who's technically adept and has plenty of time on their hands and wants to prove something to someone you know, yeah. then that's, you know, they get stuff done, right? They focus well, on... Well, it's, trans-
0: it's a transparent red team exercise, really, at this point, <laughs> isn't it? Because I'm guessing, like, who knows, maybe they Axfeld something, but, you know, this would have been a lot worse if it was a an attacker with different motivations. Yes. This kid was motivated by lulls. If it was an attacker with different motivations, this would have been heaps worse.
1: Oh, yeah. Right. Because I mean, given that level of access, because we, we've seen, you know, we were talking at the top of show, you know, they didn't necessarily have access to the front end apps or they didn't necessarily have access to the, you know, you can still get an Uber, right? You can still go drive yeah. around. Um, so in that respect, it's not as bad as it could be. But clearly you have enough access to do that. It takes engineering to understand where and how to exercise your power. But you've got everything you need at that point.
0: Yeah, I, I think and, it was I think it was Sherrod DeGrippo too on Twitter wondering like how on earth you would go about evicting someone who has <laughs> like admin access to, to everything. How do you go about that? I'm guessing you're going to require uh, some help from your your upstream providers at that point, like Amazon and Google and and whatnot, to to try to sort that out.
1: Yeah, I mean this is you know commercial incident responders are used to this process of you know evicting an attacker from an environment when they are deeply entrenched and have all the privilege, and you know there's a you know some imposing costs right to make them have to move slowly and make noise you can't do it on one go but there's a bunch of things you can do and in windows environments that process at least is kind of I mean, well understood but yeah. in, in modern cloudy environments where you've <laughs> lost all of the admin to your amazon and your googles and your you know your azures yeah that gets a bit more a bit more complicated than you know su- sucks to be the incident responders doing this on a friday night
0: Now, look, for CISOs who might be listening, and there are quite a few, like, what would you recommend they do to make sure this doesn't happen to them? Like, uh, you know, how do you even begin to go and try to identify, you know, where would you start in trying to identify if you've got this sort of ridiculous access into your PAM environment, right? Like, do you look at audit logs for your PAM? Do you just go looking for the scripts? Like, where's a good place to start?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, you you can go secrets hunting, something like Truffle Hog or, you know, uh, other approaches of going and looking for secrets. But it's just, like, that's just hard. Um, mm. And, I mean, and to me, this is more an argument for U2F and Fido, right? I mean, at the front well, end. Well, because it would
0: have stopped that first stage of the attack. It would that's have stopped right. the
1: first stage, right? I mean, the, the insider where you can go rummage around those shares, like, that's kind of a separate problem and is real hard. And that's where mm. you may look at, you know, anomaly stuff or... You know heaven forbid machine learning um to, you know to spot weird things but you know having done engagements for customers where the job was you know rummage through the file shares on the sharepoint and whatever else and find this kind of exact stuff like i've spent weeks in a in big environments you know hunting for this kind of stuff and there's no assurance you find everything but you always find something right i mean yeah old backup files of domain controllers, or, you know, that you can pull creds out, or backup file, of, you know, virtual machine images that have got credentials cached in them that are still work, or, you know, that you can extrapolate to make new credentials, you know, just by looking at the patterns or whatever else, or, you know, scripts for, you know, joining machines to the domain or whatever. Like, you, you're pretty much in any non-trivial environment, you're going to find something. And now that with the proliferation of you know, APIs and, and tokens for machine access into, you know, third parties and whatever else. Like even understanding what the scope of those credentials, like say you find an API key in a script, what does it buy you as an attacker? That's a hard question to answer. Like we struggle mm-hmm. to answer that question and it's our job. And if you're, a, you know, a sysadmin, someone just going around doing sort of, you know, housekeeping, understanding the impact of those creds is not necessarily your expertise. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's just like solving that part of it is real hard. And, you know, preventing initial compromise with better MFA, like that in this case would have helped. And, you know, some anomaly based stuff, having your logs ingested and being able to look at it. But that's also hard, you know, especially when you're seeing service accounts, you know and if an attacker is smart enough to use them in the normal pattern yeah. or they're super privileged anyway, like it's just it's hard. It's really yeah. hard.
0: Yeah, it is. It's funny, I've seen a bunch of people sort of saying that a you know good interim upgrade for your MFA is going to be that sort of numbers-based uh, auth uh, that's supported by Microsoft and whatever, where you you know user initiates the log on, they're presented with a code that they then enter into their Authenticator app. But I don't see how that's actually social engine or phishing resistant in the same way that U2F is, right? So I think that's just sort of, that, that strikes me as a bit of a step sideways. And I understand that, you know, U2F is hard to implement. Yes. FIDO2 is hard to implement at this stage. It's going to get a, an awful lot easier quite quickly, <laughs> I suspect, because there is a burning need for it now. But yeah, like this is, just, this is just one of those incidents, isn't it, that you look at it and you say, that's a hard one to have prevented. Uh, even though it was such comprehensive access that the attacker got seemingly very, very quickly, it's just one of those things where they just, you know, the attacker went to all the right places, did all the right things.
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty much, right? I mean, that's pretty straightforward from an attacker's point of view and difficult, like it's classic asymmetry right there. Like that's difficult to stop. And unfortunately, you know, you know, we spent so long trying to get people to adopt multi-factor at all, and now they have, this is the reward that they get. It's like, oh, actually, now you have yeah. to adopt the other better multi-factor. But uh, also, like, I'm just real glad that the, you know, the U2F, you know, consortium, all the people involved in, in working on that standard over the years, like, were ready when we needed them, right? They've yeah. done that work over the last five, ten, and now the industry really needs that, and, you know, we're at the point where we've got pass keys in, you know, in iOS although, and in OS. Although
0: I have seen people tweeting about, uh, you know, because I've finally upgraded to iOS 16. I've turned on lockdown mode too, and I'm absolutely stunned at how seamless it is, right? Like I'd yeah. recommend everybody out there actually give it a go. I got one friend who doesn't like it because uh, he can't get PDFs via iMessage anymore. And I'm like, you're taking PDFs that's, from iMessage? What are you nuts? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, but it, but it is pretty cool, but I have seen people complaining that like when you enable pass keys or whatever, like it, you need to use like iCloud Keychain and stuff. And, you know, I mean, you're still, it's still a step forward, but I think ultimately Apple's concern is UX yes. and that's that's cool right like that's that's going to be a significant uplift for a lot of people but perhaps you know perhaps passkeys aren't going to be the way to go enterprise wise at least for a little while
1: yeah yeah I think that's going to take a, pro, a while to bed in, and then you know, when we see Microsoft's move on that front that yeah. will become you know I imagine much more straightforward for enterprise and you know obviously 365 five based environments
0: Now, Adam, uh, we're going to talk about a story here that uh, initially I I cut from the run sheet because I just didn't think it was interesting enough, but it turns out I was wrong. And and the reasons I was wrong uh, were actually kind of interesting. There's some research here uh, that says Microsoft Teams and a couple other, you know, Electron-based apps are insecurely storing their, like, session cookie information and stuff like that in clear text. So an attacker gets on the box and can just straight up steal that information. Um, now, the reason I thought this wasn't so interesting is because it was my assumption that an attacker gets on a box, they can steal that sort of information even from a browser, right? Quite trivially. But it turns out that's not really the case anymore, which does make this story somewhat interesting.
1: Yeah, this uh, research initially came out of um, <laughs> some people who were trying to like delete accounts from Teams after the accounts have been disabled, because you can't log into the Teams client to delete your account if your account doesn't work anymore. And so they were trying to you know, figure out another way to do this by futzing around in the like SQL files that are underneath uh, these Electron apps for cookie storage. And yeah, the fact that key material, API keys, tokens, et cetera, that you can use to call into Office 365 and Teams were there in the clear is interesting. Uh, and you know, we had a robust discussion around the office as well about exactly why. And there's a couple of a couple of things, right? I mean, Electron-based apps are fundamentally just browser apps but without the security controls and sandboxing so that you can build more full-featured apps. And also you have to, as the developer, kind of bring a bunch of extra things. And one of them is like, how do you store persistent information like credentials? And in the case of Teams, it's just a SQLite database on disk. Uh, whereas in a real browser with, you know, sandboxing and other things, the credential storage is typically using some kind of platforms, you know, using the underlying platforms, key storage mechanism. So, you know, Keychain on macOS, Windows DP API, the, you know, credential storage system on Windows, et cetera. And those systems are very different than they used to be, right? Mm. I mean, the, the idea that you could land in a box and just harvest cookies or harvest, you know, key material out of the, the registry or files on disk like we used to in the, you know. Windows XP error the good old days. isn't then the, good old days, <laughs> in the easy in the easy mode hacking days right it's yeah. just kind of not like that anymore and one of my colleagues made the really good point that there's also a fundamental difference between um, I have code exec on the box and you know clearly I can kind of do anything you know as admin on that machine versus I'm in a user context versus I have file system read but not code exec. Um, and that could happen in the case of a you know a corporate Windows environment through roaming profiles. You've got access to the file share, but maybe you don't have access to run on the box and call into the credential management and the you know, decryption APIs like API on Windows to actually then process you know cookies out of Chrome or whatever, whereas here with Teams, you could. And so the Twitter argument kind of oscillated between, like, of course, you've, if you've got access to the box, you can get stuff, which is... You know, yeah,
0: and I mean my comment science crew Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> my, my comment was, well, surely you could just install a hidden extension, right? Mm-hmm. Like into the browser <laughs> and get the cookies that way, even if you can't just directly read them. And you reminded me of the Sharpexed uh, yes. y- incident, right? Where who was it, was it the North Koreans or something? Yeah, um the
1: Kim Kimsaki crew.
0: Yeah, so the North Koreans were, were doing this, installing these hidden uh, hidden extensions. Um, and you'd mentioned when we spoke about them that it was fiddly, right? But I went back and I looked up the Velexity blog post about just how fiddly it is. And in order to like install a hidden extension on Chrome, you need to first xfill all of these config files and then like be able to regenerate them off the box and then put them back. And you need to have read and absorbed a Russian language forum post from like, you know, a couple of years ago, plus research (laughs) from a Swedish university. You needed Eye of Newt. You needed to burn some sage leaves, do the right incantations. Like, you know, so as you say, the idea that you can win once you're on the box, and this is something you did say in that Twitter thread, uh, the idea that you can win on that box, it's computer science true, but it's not real world attacker true, right? Because there's a lot of engineering that goes into turning, even just, you know, use a shell to extraction of cookies from user browser, like that's that's actually kind of hard now.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have imposed cost on adversaries through making that process harder, you know, and using platform APIs for key management and, you know, all sorts of isolation and memory protection. And, and you know, if you're using like some of the Microsoft stuff now where it separates things out into different context, Like, it's just, it's actually complicated now. And yes, computer science says you can get it in the end. Uh, and so all of the, you know, angry old greybeards on Twitter are, are, are still correct. I will acknowledge that. But, you know, as a real-world attacker, landing on a box, like, it's fiddly. And yeah, but landing
0: it. on a box which where, where Microsoft Teams app is running and just being able to copy the creds out, like, that's, yeah. you know, that is you know, it's almost like a a positive sign of the times when that being possible is news.
1: Yes. Yeah, actually, you're exactly right. This is interesting because of that exact fact. Um, And, you know, I think over time, we will see Microsoft move away from Electronics. Microsoft said, like, this doesn't really, like, this doesn't really need a security patch, and they're kind of right. Uh, Like, this is just how it works. And, you know, we know that they're moving away from the Teams app. I mean, I think they're they're killing it on Linux pretty soon. They're going to move to a, a... Progressive web app instead, and I think we will see that follow on the other platforms. Like, Electron well, you can already and- join.
0: Like, I don't use Zoom, installed Zoom client. I no. don't use the installed Teams client. I, you know, there's always a load in browser option these days, yes. and you just use it. Like, why? You know, I I don't use a Slack app. I don't use a Signal app. Like, no. I don't know. And and this is the thing, right? That we've often talked about with Electron. You mentioned it earlier. It's just a browser without the security protection, yes. right? So we're <laughs> going to keep seeing stuff like this.
1: Yes, yes, we are. And I think, you know, as the, you know, these uh, browser framework, you know, as a separate program things, you know, really are just an interim thing, right, to get full-feature desktop apps in the browser world and the browsers are getting better at, Hosting those apps and you know the the functionality of browser teams versus Electron teams, it's not far off. Now, I mean, I use browser teams because I'm afraid of Electron apps. (laughs) Like friends don't let friends
0: use Electron apps. Um,
1: And yeah, like it's fine as a daily driver. And I think you know over time we will see it kind of drop out of favour because it's a bit of a kludge to just you know move quickly get an app out. And then, you know, the browsers are going to catch up. The browser as the operating system is going to catch up and we'll, you know, it'll move back into the, the safety of the browser and we will be better off for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so all, all very interesting stuff there. And I want to thank Charles Van Vault, uh from Orange Cyber Defence, formerly uh, SensePost, for, uh, you know, kicking off that whole conversation uh, on Twitter. Hi, Charles. Uh, always good to hear from you. My friend, um, so let's move on to some more bread and butter infosec news from the last week, Adam, and uh, some some goings on in Central America. This story, I think, carries one of my favorite, one of the best corrections I've ever seen. Uh, It turns out like a group of uh, apparent hacktivists has dumped like 10 terabytes of military emails and files onto the internet. This is a story by AJ Vicenz over at CyberScoop. Uh, The correction on the story at the end is is all time. It says, this story initially inaccurately reported that the released files totaled 10 gigabytes. The correct figure is roughly 10 terabytes, Um, which is, you know, that's a lot of data. What's going on here?
1: that's a lot of data yes so this uh, activist group which's been around for a little while um, has broken into you know military and police agencies in Chile Mexico El Salvador Colombia Peru uh, and you know they are you know pretty classic activists right they are concerned around you know um, exploitation of natural resources of influence from you know North America and corpos and and all of the other you know kind of um, people sticking their fingers in the you know in the pies of South America and, and taking their resources and taking their land and so on and so forth um, and so yeah this is a it's I imagine going to be a really big deal it's, it's a lot of data 10 terabytes uh, of emails you know there'll be all sorts of you know corruption and backhanded deals and and you know stuff for journalists and activists and people to research for quite a long time coming you um, I read this, and I'm like it's kind of nice to see hacktivism. <laughs> you know it's uh, you, know, I, you know you don't want to yeah this is
0: like the ride on hacktivism. you know, it's yeah. not like some creepy agency pretending to be hacktivist.
1: Yes, like this feels like real, you know the real the real deal. and that's good. Like it's about time we start to see people using these powers you know, for what feels like a pretty legit cause.
0: Now, from hacktivists to you know, cyber war, Adam, hang on.
1: internet weapon. Uh, Russia has (laughs) made a uh,
0: not-so-veiled threat against Starlink, uh, which is, you know, I mean, we... we, said as much that this, you know, that Starlink has become a military target due to its uh, involvement in supplying various defence forces, including the Ukrainian Defence Force uh, with, you know, access, uh, modem, satellite access, the whole thing. Uh, so yeah, we've got a, um, a Russian official out here now saying, you know, absolutely that uh, some of this quasi-civilian infrastructure is a legit military target. And, uh, you know, for once, it's hard to disagree with something that a Russian official is saying.
1: Yes, this guy was talking uh, at a United Nations working group uh, about, like, reducing space threats, which is ironic, given, you know, Russia's testing of anti-satellite weapons without much thought. Um, But, yeah, you can see their point, right? From there, you know, it looks like, you know, um, military communications, because that's what it's being used for. The fact that it's civilian infrastructure, you know, commercial civilian infrastructure is novel, I suppose, uh, but... You know, yeah, can't disagree with them. And then, what you know, what this really means for SpaceX? I mean, surely this is a thing they would have previously considered, right? So, I mean, they the well, the I two mean, it is options. a
0: company run by Elon Musk, so maybe mm-hmm. not.
1: But there's, lot, but there's a lot of smart people still, nevertheless, at SpaceX. Um, mm. But I mean, I guess there's two options for Russia, right? There is Kinetic and there's the Cybers. Uh, the Cyber seems a lot more sensible as an approach. You know, break into SpaceX, you know, brick all of the satellites in orbit. You know, that would be a pretty big coup for, you know, Russian intelligence agencies to pull off. That would be some top quality cybering. Um, the Kinetic option is the one that gets, you know, a bit more, you know, a few more collar benches because it's glamorous, I suppose, watching stuff blow up. Um, but, you know, actually disabling the SpaceX Constellation with anti-satellite weapons when the... Anti-satellite missiles probably cost, you know, 20, 30, 40 million a pop. And the SpaceX satellites cost quite a bit less. Uh, So, like, you know, the, the economics are not on the Russian side there. But it's still a really interesting situation. And, you know, the worst case scenario of the Russians, you know, cause cascading Kepler syndrome and render the entire... You know, 500 kilo, uh, kilometer, you know, orbit entirely unusable. I yeah, uh, I don't want to see. I don't want to see either of those things happen. So you know, stay away from our Starlinks.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had someone ask me, you know, why is this a, you know, why is this a big deal? And it's really because you know, you are talking about an, an attack against Starlink would actually have implications for people outside the conflict theater. You know, I mean, there's yes. a bunch of regional schools in Brazil that use it right for their for their internet access. So. You know, it really is an unusual situation where you do have a piece of shared infrastructure that is so clearly civilian and military, right? So Starlink yeah. doesn't just sell to the Ukrainian military. I mean, they've even got contracts with various bits of the US military. So Starlink is a defense contractor which is also which also sells to consumers. So it's a bit of an interesting situation here, but it is very hard to dispute what the Russians are saying here, which is, like, if you're going to use it for battlefield comms in Ukraine, which is a... War that we're fighting. I'm sorry, a special military operation. Then, yeah, obviously it's going to be a target. So let's see what happens. You know, I'd, I'd hope that Starlink is upping its game on its infosec team yes, a little bit. I would yeah,
1: hope so. Yeah,
0: and maybe not leaving scripts with uh, full admin access to its Pam solutions lying around in open <laughs> network shares.
1: <laughs> yes. Any any listeners, SpaceX, go, go check <laughs> for yeah. some PowerShell scripts. <laughs> yeah,
0: basically uh, that would be uh, that would be a good idea. Uh, yeah. We've also seen some um, some other hacktivism. There's actually been some legit hacktivism. Uh, uh, this week, I mean, you know, this could be a uh, could be a APT crew from a, a pro Western APT crew. Who knows? But it kind of looks like activism to me. Uh, someone managed to grab a database of Wagner Group mercenaries, including like passport scans and stuff, and like splatter that stuff all over the internet. My favorite place where this stuff turned up was on a Russian real estate listings website. So you'd you'd see a listing for an apartment in Moscow. Uh, And click through in the pictures would all be passports of Wagner group guys, Um, which it got pulled pretty quick. But yeah, this is this looks like it's a it's a legit breach. And this information is probably going to come in handy uh, for, you know, you'd think for Western intelligence and also OSINT researchers, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, the OSINT people will be just you know clapping all over the place. This will be um, you know, super useful for them. They love that stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, this seems like legit hacktivism to me. As you say, it could be somebody else helping things along, but um, it just underscores you know how connected everything is, and you know, the fact that this kind of information is you know one PHP web app and some you know, SQL injection or whatever else away. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a crazy, crazy world, <laughs> and you know. That's going to be a lot of pissed off mercenaries, you know, pissed off with their bosses, pissed off that their identities have been exposed to. You know, like it's just bad for morale. And, you know, I'm sure the, the NAFO activists <laughs> are all celebrating with some fresh dog memes.
0: Uh, yeah, Alexander Martin over at The Record has an interesting report up here, staying on the on the theme of Russia. Uh, you know, there, there's some concern that with the sanctions situation in Russia, that some of the APT crews there might be tasked with industrial espionage, which I think is a reasonable thing to sort of think about, right?
1: Yeah, it yeah, certainly is, right? I mean, you put pressure on Russia, they're going to look for ways to alleviate that pressure and you know, if they have to develop domestic industry to supplant stuff that they are, you know, they can't buy now because of sanctions, then yeah, using the cybers to, you know, steal technology or means production or whatever else, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, makes sense. And it's also very much in their playbook, you know, going back into the Cold War, they got a lot of expertise in doing this. Um, So, you know, in some respects, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? This is just, you know. They've been doing this for a long time. Obviously, China and other people have been, you know, doing similar sorts of things, perhaps with more effectiveness than the Russians can pull off. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know if they've got. Like, it's going to be a hard road for them to survive and, you know, build new industries or build new things. You know, only with industrial espionage. You know, given the extent of sanctions, but yeah, they know what they're doing. Right? Yeah. experience.
0: and at the time that we record this, too, the thinking is that uh, in something like six hours from now. Ah, uh, Putin's going to do a speech announcing mobilisation uh, of Russian forces to to expand uh, the Ukraine conflict. So uh, you know, everything. It just feels like the world's going to hell in a handbasket at the moment. Yeah, but anyway, let's sure move on. Uh, this one's interesting. This is one from Cyber Scoop, written by Tonya Riley. Um, so. It's it's creepy, right? So Customs and Border Protection in the United States, when they grab a device and they image it, you know, and suck all the messages and photos and stuff off it and whatever, you know, the thinking used to be that they're going to look through the calendar notes to see if someone's got work meetings scheduled when they're coming on a tourist visa. You know, they're going to look for through messages to see if anyone's planning a terrorist attack, that sort of thing. You know, look through images, looking for child exploitation material, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but it turns out that CBP, once it sucks information off a device that they seize at the border or, or you know, examine at the border, they just take all that info and chuck it into a big old database. Adam,
1: yeah, that. That is not particularly nice to think about. I mean, I've crossed the U.S. border a few times. I don't think I've ever had my device you know, imaged without my non- – I don't think I've ever had my device imaged. Um, but, yeah, that would make me not want to go to the U.S. Like that – the idea that's going to get stuck in a in – you know, in some – well, I mean, it's one thing that's going to be stuck in a database where American law enforcement and intelligence and whatever else can look at it. The other thing is it's probably going to be in some mongo on the internet and 10 years from now some kid <laughs> is going to, you know, steal it. Well, Amer- <laughs> America's you know, it be...
0: not China, you know. know. Take it
1: easy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, this is, is, is creepy and gross. And, you know, the US border is always unpleasant to cross, uh, regardless as, a, as, a, as, a, you know, as an alien. But also, you know, they're hoovering up in some cases, you know, American citizens data as well. I mean, the, the extension, like the border, uh, and the places where this can happen is, you know, surprisingly large, uh, you know, amount of space and also affects a large amount of Americans.
0: Yeah, I mean, that said, you know, I think something that sort of offsets the creepiness here, and don't get me wrong, I don't think they should be allowed to do this, right? But, uh, you know, they have something they had in the fiscal year 2021, they had like 179 million travellers at US ports of entry, and they apparently grabbed grabbed data from like less than 10,000 devices. So, you know, you wonder... I mean, as I say, it's still creepy, but you wonder how sort of pervasive, it, like how much of an invasion it is when it seems to uh, affect a relatively small number of people.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess that's that's some, but not much comfort. Um, yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not, uh, we've seen some comparisons to, you know, some of the, um, you know, large scale wiretapping and, and things from the Snowden era, and it's not quite that big, but yeah. it's still creepy.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely creepy. And you sort of think, well, you know, just because I haven't had my device grabbed doesn't mean someone that I have communicated with hasn't yes, had theirs grabbed, yes, right? Absolutely, so, yes, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, just 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 gives me a bit of the creepies. And uh, there's going to be a bit of an inquiry, inquiry there. Uh, so I think this is the result of a uh, uh, congressional inquiry. So who knows what they're going to do about it? Probably not much is my... Uh, is my feeling, but, um, you know, like there is something to be said for the argument that when you cross the border into the United States, maybe you want to leave your, your regular phone at home, you know?
1: Unfortunately, yeah, that's, that's the you know, the right choice and it's super inconvenient, but oh well.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, or you could take a backup, which you store in the cloud, nuke and your phone and then, yeah. it, and then restore it. I mean, you know, only a crazy person would do that. <clears throat> anyway, yeah. uh, moving on and uh, what have we got here? Yeah, this, this I found really interesting. It's another one yes. from Tonya Riley uh, from Cyberscoop. And um, this guy, what's his name? Scott DeWiki, who's a global fellow at the Wilson Center. Uh, he told members of the House Financial Services Subcommittee on National Security, International Development and Monetary Policy that the focus on cryptocurrencies as you know the sole enablers of illicit transactions over the internet is, is pretty myopic. And in fact, there are a bunch of poorly regulated services uh, like Alipay in China, and um, there's a Russian one as well, Ki- Kiwi with a Q. Those sort of services are really popular with criminals and, and perhaps, you know, we should focus on them as well. Not so much like don't focus on cryptocurrency, but pointing out that there's, there's, there's other ways, right? So maybe need to think about them as well.
1: Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, because you see Alipay, you know, aware stickers on payment terminals all over the place here, and I never really thought about what that would mean for, you know, how that fits into the picture of, of money laundering and other and illicit financing. Um, and I was also deeply amused by the idea that the cryptocurrency bros have – built a more surveillance friendly payment system like uh, uh, you know one that better supports regulation because uh, there was some comment in, the, in this piece also from um, you know one of the like cryptocurrency tracing people saying you know th- th- this stuff is actually pretty straightforward and yeah like th- good job well crypto- i mean it's I, i'm guessing <laughs> i'm
0: guessing alipay is still surveillance friendly it's just not surveillance just not friendly ours. for everyone yeah exactly yes.
1: right? <laughs> yeah so that was, that was fun i enjoyed that part <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, link in this week's show notes to anyone who wants to read uh, about that. But yeah, again, it's like, yeah, it's not something I really thought about either. So that's why I found it uh, uh, very interesting. Uh, we got a story from Jonathan Grieg from The Record here. And SISA uh, is really serious about its plan to create a, you know, emergency 311, dial 311 for cyber help uh, service. And it looks like they're going to partner with some universities. And I, I just think it would be terrific if this thing actually got there. But it's such a novel and interesting idea, you just wonder if they'll be able to scale it, if people will use it, and how useful it'll be, but like, I love them for trying. This is a cool yeah, idea, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I read it and I'm torn between like the sort of admiration The cynical, of that. The
0: cynical on one shoulder and the optimist yes, on the other, right? Yes, like, I'm yes, exactly, exactly the same. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly, because it's just like the idea that phoning some university kids is going to solve your problems. I mean, they might listen and they might have some ideas, and like the career development aspect of having you know, people exposed to incidents really early on in their in their you know careers or study or whatever. Like that Mate, throw legit, throw, throw of a of few experience. third
0: year, throw a few third year security students at a real incident at an SME. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna be it's catnip. They're gonna love it. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. it'll be great for the like, from that point of view, great for the students. Whether it's effective incident response or whether they get useful or actionable advice, like that's a, a bit harder. And scaling it, that's the real the real challenge, right? Because I mean, yeah. there's just such a volume. But hey, 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 tapping
0: tapping head gif, you don't have to scale it if nobody uses it. That's the thing that I wonder, like how many people will be aware, you know, how many people will actually use it, what sort of experience are they going to have, and that sort of, you know, so I think the question of do you need to scale it is an open question because we don't know who's going to use it.
1: That's true, yeah. I mean, I I think it would be a great thing to try and I'd love to see, you know, how it goes, what they learn from it, um, because, you know, I think sort of the experience of our national cert being stood up and then they had... You know helping small medium businesses in you know when bad stuff happens kind of in their mandate and that was a really hard mission for them right and mm. you know compared to the other things that a national cert has to do like it was just a really difficult thing to do well and it was more you know hugs and thoughts and prayers like having someone that listened was the main thing that they could offer just because it was you know even in new zealand scale resourcing it was hard you know doing good job was hard you know but, dealing but, with but, all that. i mean even if they hard.
0: Even if they can't supply some students to do incident response, the idea that there's a number that a business can call and they say, okay, what, you know, it looks like you're being ransomware. What you want to do is you want to call an incident responder. You know, we have a list of companies in your area that do it. You can expect to pay about this much. Like even just that level of yes. advice is going to be useful.
1: Yes. Yeah. I, I, agreed. And uh, so, yeah, I think let, let's give it a try.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's run it up the flagpole. See
1: what happens.
0: Ah, uh, Kiwi Farms, Adam, having a bad time. Uh, couldn't have happened to a nicer bunch of people.
1: Yes, everyone's favourite hate forum uh, apparently got themselves well and truly owned. Uh, and ironically, and much to my pleasure, uh, it appears to be through some, like, software developed in-house. <laughs> They'd written some, like, chat server in, in Rust, and because Rust is, you know, memory safe, therefore it's hacker-proof, it uh, turns out Logic Bug's still kind of a thing. Um, yeah, they got themselves owned, user database dumps, some records dumped... Um, and, uh, yeah, as you say, it could not have happened to a nice bunch of people. And when that data is out and available, uh, you know, I'm sure there'll be many OSN researchers and other people uh, that, you know, access records, logs, usernames, uh, for a forum like that, going to be a treasure trove.
0: Yeah, it's just funny that the doxing people don't seem to like doxing anymore.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm just
0: uh, I'm just swimming around in the irony over here. Yes, and, um, so good. And, you know, there, it looks like, yeah, it looks like they might have been owned a while too.
1: <laughs> yes, there's been some, you know, now that people are talking about it, it does seem like there are uh, some evidence of previous earlier compromise, which, you know, once again, you're, you're, you, know, you paint yourself, paint a target on yourself with, you know, an environment like this. And when they were hiding behind Cloudflare, right, application bugs are what you need, right, to get past that. Like, that's, this is exactly what you expect. Uh, and, yeah, sucks to be them, ha-ha.
0: Oh now some time ago we spoke about this uh, and I can't remember if we spoke about it as well as me and Tom on Seriously Risky Beers, but you know, there was a there was a um some sort of social media influence campaign that Stanford uh, managed to... Was it Stanford? I think it was Stanford. Anyway, yeah, someone, Stanford. Yes. Yeah, someone managed to attribute it basically to the US military, uh, which isn't the sort of stuff the US military should be doing. And now it looks like there's a Pentagon inquiry and they're going to try to get to the bottom of it. Like, it was such a piss-weak influence <laughs> campaign. There was like 100 and, 150 fake Twitter accounts or something. And uh, someone is going to get in trouble uh, for this when they all they were trying to do was hit some KPI that said that they did meme yeah. wars, you know? <laughs>
1: Yeah, the control of the information battle space. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, but it, it's, you know, it, I imagine there are quite a lot of places where, you know, different sorts of info ops are going on, you know, around the U.S. mill and intel communities. And, you know, everyone's kind of having a hoon at it. And there's lots of, you know, different approaches and, and different degrees of effectiveness. And also good questions about whether or not it's a thing they should be doing. Or, or at least which parts of, you know, U.S. Gov. Mill Intel ought to be doing info ops and which ones should just, like, stick to being authentic and not trolling people on Twitter.
0: Yeah, I mean it doesn't, you know, fighting fire with fire. In this case, you're just going to wind up burning a lot of stuff down. It doesn't <laughs> yes. seem, it uh, doesn't seem very sensible. And uh, you know, transparency is a better weapon to fight disinformation than you know yes, doing the same thing. Uh, for anyone who's interested in that, Tom Tom Uren, who writes our seriously risky business newsletter, he's done just some splendid analysis on all of this. Um, so you can go and, and check that out in, in past newsletter editions. Uh, you mentioned this earlier, but the uh, Parliament of Bosnia and Herzegovina has been. Owned, uh, pretty bad uh, with a ransomware attack and it's, it's dragging on, it's been going on for a while and just, uh, you know, what a time to be alive, Adam
1: Yeah, yeah, really apparently parliamentarians there are being told not to turn their computers on they can't use their email, you know, they can't get their jobs done which, yeah, the fact that a you know, national government's can be crippled by common garden ransomware what a time
0: Krebs has a great story up here too about uh, three uh, men from the UK who have wound up in jail for trying to rubber hose uh, someone's cryptocurrency uh, out of them. But I think they turned up to the house and the guy wasn't home.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then one of the neighbours was like, these guys are looking kind of sass, called the police, they got arrested. You know, they had like a you know, baseball bat and a, you know, police uniform or something, and they were going to attempt to steal the person's cryptocurrency. uh, And yeah, did did not happen. But, you know, Krebs rightly points out this is kind of part of a rise of physical, like real world violence as a service, you know, especially in the, you know, identity theft, doxing, cryptocurrency sorts of worlds.
0: Yeah, I mean, why come up with a clever flash loan attack against a DAO when you could just go and beat the crap out of someone and take all their Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, gets the job done, and uh, probably more straightforward than some of the you know crypto attacks.
0: Yeah, and speaking of DAOs getting owned for like lots and lots of money, uh, one called <laughs> as we do Win- every week. <laughs> yeah, every week, man. Wintermute uh, says that uh, 160 million bucks worth of crypto somethings have have been vermoost.
1: <laughs> yep, that's just situation normal in the world. Like, uh, yeah, what do we? What do you even say? Like, how many cryptocurrencies... every week for the last what three months we've had a. Some DeFi exchange loses hundreds of millions of dollars. So, yeah,
0: it's yeah. just so regular now. Like sometimes we don't even talk about them. Is it a yeah. DAO? Is it DeFi? I don't oh, even yeah. know. I, I don't care.
1: <laughs> yeah, whatever.
0: A bunch of people lost a bunch of money because they didn't,
1: you know. A bunch of fake internet money.
0: Yeah, which someone is probably going to turn into real money and have a very nice time with. Um, so, you know, people can click through to this week's show notes and check that one out. And finally, Adam, a uh, an anonymous hacker, uh, has been arrested in Canada after publishing a whole bunch of TikToks about the crimes that they were committing, which is, um, you know, I mean, if you're going to make TikToks about the crimes that you commit, you might expect to get a visit from law enforcement.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. This guy's been hacking all sorts of stuff um. And yeah, as you're, like posting TikToks to his like forty thousand followers, in his a uh, like literal like Guy Fawkes era anonymous mask, um, which turns out that's not quite how anonymity works. You don't yeah. just have to put on the put on the mask and then all of a sudden you are uh, uh, what was the quote from him? Um, Literally a famous f-ing cyber terrorist. Do you think you can scare me? Um, yeah. Yeah, so now the Canadian police have picked him up. Apparently he's living in his car uh, and has had all of his computers and NAS and uh, other devices uh, taken and and his Guy Fawkes mask taken as evidence. So Yes,
0: I think something that might be entered into evidence is uh, the statement uh, that he hacked Epic, Epic Hosting, uh, Parler, Gab, Truth Social, Gives and Go, and he doesn't care. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, that's... That's going to be interesting, but yeah, it looks like political targets, you know, that uh, they'll be going after. But you know, it doesn't matter. Crime's a crime, pal. Uh, just because mm-hmm. you, just because you, you know, it's a matter of political belief, doesn't shield you from prosecution, as it turns out. But Adam, that is actually it for this week's news. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. That was a really great uh, discussion, and uh, we'll do it all again
1: next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. I'll talk to you then. That was
0: Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Steve Carter, the chief executive of Nucleus Security. Nucleus makes a platform that you plug all your vulnerability scanners into and it normalizes that information and lets you do useful stuff with it, like plumb it through to ticketing systems or whatever, uh, you know, drop it into Slack. Uh, And we're talking to Steve today about CISA's known exploited vulnerability list. And this is a list of CVEs that are being exploited in the wild. And the thinking is that you can prioritize the remediation of the bugs that are on the Kev list. Now, when the list first kicked off, it was obviously quite small, but now it's grown and it has over 800 CVEs on it. And, you know, before we were recording, I was joking with Steve that if you're in a position to identify 800 CVEs, you're probably in a good position to identify the other 200,000 CVEs that exist, right? Because you've obviously built some processes um, that let you scan all of your environment. Um, but yeah, as you'll hear, the Kev list is actually pretty useful. Uh, it can help you do things like prioritize what you're going to remediate first, but it would be nice to see CISA publish some more context, uh, on these bugs so people can make better use out of it. Anyway, here is Steve Carter.
2: I mean, one of the things that we like about the list, it's, I mean, it it is really, uh, it does a good job of kind of separating signal from noise because, and, and you guys talk to, I believe you talked to Andrew a few weeks ago, Andrew Morris from Grey Noise, and you guys were talking about some of the, the pitfalls with different threat intel providers. There's data quality issues, there's gaps in their yeah. data, it's hard to operationalize and make decisions on that. At least with this, it's a, it's a yes or no, true or false, high signal coming from a source that most people put a lot of confidence and trust in. and so. You know, they, no, it, no,
0: I'm, I, I think I'm. I think I'm. I think I'm seeing the advantage here, right? Which is, you know, as much as I'm joking about, well, what's the difference between 800 versus 200,000? I think the difference is, it's in that post scan bit where you actually have to go and remediate them, right? Like that's the um, that's where the difference is, and this gives you a way to sort of prioritize what you go after first. I think that's what you're saying, yeah?
2: Absolutely, and, and I should say also, you know, out of the 800, you know, when you look at the, the categories of vulnerabilities, I think something like I don't know, 40 or 50% are vulnerabilities against firmware. So you think like control systems and things like this. So really quickly, um, you know, a SaaS company, for instance, can just like chop half of the list off and say, okay, we don't, you know, we don't have hardware. So those are gone. So it's really quickly to kind of whittle that list down to something even smaller. But absolutely, if you're making decisions about what to, what to patch out of cycle, let's say, it's a lot easier to take that short list Uh, versus everything, right, and just focus on that because according to CISA, that's the, you know, it's the highest priority vulnerabilities out there.
0: But then again, I mean, do they provide any context on who is exploiting these vulnerabilities and, you know, at what sort of scale, at what sort of impact? Because, you know, you, you might see, okay, this vuln is on the Kev list and they say it's being used by ransomware crews that, you know, typically target our vertical. Like that's one you want to get on <laughs> immediately, right? Or it might be, um, you know, some uh, smaller APT crew that only targets, has only historically targeted shipping companies and you're not a shipping company. You, you know what I mean? So like how much context <laughs> do you get to go along with this stuff, right?
2: No, you are spot on. And in fact, uh, Sisa Kev, Maintainer, if you're out there and you're listening... Like it, this is absolute, there is, this is one of the reasons we're so excited because of the potential here, right? They, they've done a great thing in in my opinion, at least, but there's so much opportunity to do so much more with some of this context. So you mentioned attribution. and Yes, it would be amazing if they could provide some attribution information. You know that they have it uh, 100%. There could be some challenges to disclosing some of that, obviously with, you know, sources and methods and all that stuff, but there is so much more context they could give just in terms of you know, how, how frequently is this being exploited? Was it exploited a year ago, five years ago, yesterday? We don't know. Yes. Um, is yes. It, did, you, <laughs> did you observe it on an internal network being exploited or is this something being mass exploited on the internet, right? There are huge differences here. And I think it, a lot of this is low-hanging fruit. It's just a matter of them, you know, putting the data out there and finding ways to release more of this data. And so I think it's a huge opportunity. And so I'm encouraging them. To, uh, or I, I want to encourage them uh, to, to go down this path because, uh, yeah, I mean, right now they're the only, I still say they're the best source of free vulnerability intelligence out there. There really aren't any sources of free vulnerability intelligence. It's, um, it's pretty sparse. And, and in fact, Grey Noise does put their stuff out there for free. So I got to give props to them. Um, but yeah, there's a ton of opportunity here.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you do a bit of work with Mandiant, don't you, uh, in terms of taking their lists of what's popping up in the wild? I mean, I'm sure you've sat down and compared Kev to what Mandiant puts out. Like, you know, what are the lessons there? I can see. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, actually, I've looked at that. And in fact, I've looked at Grey Noise as well, right? And, and uh, when you look at the CISA list that's 800 plus uh, and, and you stack it up against Mandiant, I think it's maybe, um, I don't know, three or 400 of the vulnerabilities that CISA says are exploited in the wild, Mandiant will say are exploited in the wild, which, you know, makes sense. I think when you look at uh, CISA and DHS, it's like they've got their hooks in a lot of places. They're watching a lot of things that not all private sector or, yeah, private sector companies have access to. So um, so is
0: this like a, I mean, I'm, I imagine this is like a Venn diagram situation. Right?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, and gray Noise is looking at um, exploitation activity across the internet only, right? So I think they see something like, 150 out of the 800. Yeah, but they're
0: seeing, I mean, they're seeing the ones that are just burning stuff down at scale right Right. now,
2: right? And that's,
0: you know, that's interesting that you've mentioned them a few times because, okay, say you've got the KevList and you've got a list from noise. I mean, probably the one from Noise is going to be the one that you're going to use first, right?
2: I would absolutely say. And it's solely
0: because because of that context piece because you know if it's popping up from Noise that it's being, not just being exploited, but being exploited well Quite a lot.
2: Yes, yes, and just shameless plug here. That's exactly what we started doing. So every time CISA gives another batch of vulnerabilities, which is about once or twice a week these days, we will uh, do some analysis of those vulnerabilities, and we've got a table that we show where we overlay gray noise and some other information across the list of new vulnerabilities. And 100, you can prioritize even further within that list of 800 with things like gray noise. So it's fantastic, and it's yeah, and it's yeah. free, so also, if it's- right? It's great.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, that Venn diagram thing too, you know, if it's, if it's prioritized by Mandiant, the United States government and Grey Noise, um, <laughs> that's probably a signal that you need to drop everything uh,
2: and run, right? Absolutely. And when you whittle it down that far, I mean, you're talking about, let's see, if you go Grey Noise and sysa you're at a hundred and something again, out of 200 something thousand. So you are like in a, in a manageable place. So yeah, it's, uh, I think I think it's a great thing that they're doing. I would just love to see the SISA folks put a little bit more data out there and a little bit more context.
0: So, you know, when this thing first popped up, uh, I think Adam and I were like, oh, you know, it's great having this small manageable list. And I guess we got a bit dismayed that it got so big so quickly. But I guess... I guess what you're saying makes sense, right, is the people who are not in a position to do any sort of vuln discovery and scanning, I mean, they're just kind of screwed, right? Like if they don't have anything at all or even patching processes or whatever, they are, they are just kind of screwed. So, you know, having something that allows – it seems like based on this conversation, what you're saying is, you know, this list at least allows people to prioritise uh, people who do have good scanning and good identification uh, practices to prioritise the remed- remediation.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so, yeah, it, it does require some level of maturity there for sure. If, if you're not yeah. using good scanning tools already, uh, you've got bigger fish to fry hundred percent.
0: Yeah. Now um, what, uh, what, what other suggestions might you have for the, uh, for the Kev team over at Sisa? Any other ideas? Cause um, I mean, you're the one sitting there consuming this information on behalf of an awful lot of clients, right? Right. You know, you're, you're, you're actually plugging this in to a big system that's, you know, that's being used out there by all sorts of organizations. So you're actually in a pretty good position to provide feedback. What What's something else you'd, you know, feature request. Let's go.
2: <laughs> feature request. Yeah. So I, it would be nice to have like a regular cadence because sometimes they go weeks, many weeks without, you know, giving us any vulnerabilities and then they, they drop a large list on us and it's really unclear. Why they chose the timing. It's not just as the new vulnerabilities are are announced and, and discovered publicly. So it would be good to have a little more predictability there. Um, I think I mentioned some of the things with regard to like um, you know qualifying some of this information. So was it successful exploitation, or was it not? right? And, and they say on the web, on their website they say like, hey, just because it's in this list doesn't mean it's been successfully exploited. Like that's really important. Can't they context. say that
0: that's not very, that's, I know. you know, then why, <laughs> then why put it on the list? I mean, I'm, so, you know, I'm raging with you here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, well, yeah, what does that mean? Is there ex? So that means there's probably like exploit code in development and POC and, and, and there probably will be successful exploitation soon. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe someone
0: dropped a POC to the, to the forum, but I mean, unless they actually to a forum, but I mean, unless they actually go and test the POC, like, I mean if you test the pock, why not just say that? Why not just say someone dropped a pock onto a forum, we tested it, it works. Therefore, this goes on the list. Low hanging It's through. not so right. hard, people. Exactly. That's, that's what I'm not saying. So and,
2: hard. and and that's why I, I, I <laughs> hope someone from Cissa is listening, because a lot of this stuff is really easy and they could add so much so much value to it and, and to what's already there. Um, so yeah, I think
0: But it sounds like it sounds like in broad in a broad sense though, you're you're quite supportive of this idea.
2: Yes, yeah, and again, like the Price is Right, um, it's it's free. It's one of the <laughs> it's one of the the few ones out there, and they are answering what, what I think is you know the most important question in vulnerability management when it comes to to prioritization and how to spend your time, right? Like what's being actively exploited, especially right now. Um, that's the most important question to answer. And if and if you're uh, you know even a mid-sized company, uh, you, you probably know, right? The the cost for a lot of these threat intel feeds um, they're cost prohibitive for most companies. You've got to be, you know, you've got to have a budget for a lot of these feeds. And so the fact that they're putting this out there, they're answering that most important question, at least to a degree. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very supportive of it. I just, I just want to see it get better and, uh, and I hope that, you know, they, they give me a call after this and we have a conversation.
0: (laughs) Have you seen anything on the Kev list, uh, that you think shouldn't have been there or have you, and also have you seen anything on there that really surprised you that, that wound up, you know, belonging there, but sort of shocked you.
2: So we saw some vulnerabilities from, I believe, the early two thousands pop up, which was really interesting. And that goes back to my question of, uh, and, and they say um, this, these are these are vulnerabilities that we've observed. Uh, being exploited at some point. It's, they're not saying it's right now or in the last month. So it could have been years ago. It could have been logs from many years ago that they saw as exploitation. So that was kind of weird. And it's hard to do prioritization based uh, without that context. Uh, we saw that uh, sometimes on occasion, they, you'll see a vulnerability pop up and they'll disappear. And what, what their rule is, is supposed to be that they're not gonna put something on the list that doesn't already have a patch. So then we're in the problem of zero days being exploited in the wild. Uh, They will pop up on the list, and then they're going to disappear on accident, and then they might disappear later because there's no patch yet, which... Like to me, just- That seems like a weird decision. It is, honestly. it is a weird decision. Like, so again, don't you
0: want to know about the the CVE that you can yeah. actually identify that is Oday? So like that, How about, so you can remediate
2: it? Yes, a column for Oday, leave it in the list. Yeah, perfect. This is something I'm going to be monitoring very closely, right? Again, such low hanging fruit. It could be so good, Patrick. I really want it to be good. <laughs> and, I mean, it's good. It could be great. Let's say that.
0: No, man, I, I get it. And this, this whole interview is really funny because it is seriously you just sort of like politely raging about like a few <laughs> tiny little feature requests. I do my Steve bad. Carter, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us to have that conversation because, um, yeah, you know, it is, it is really interesting to get your perspective there. Cheers.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Patrick. Take care.
0: That was Steve Carter of Nucleus Security there. Big thanks to him for that and big thanks to Nucleus for being our sponsor this week. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow in Seriously Risky Business with Tom Uren in our other RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.